Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue our discussion of the book of Acts, the transitional book of Acts. Just want to stress that reality. When, uh, when Jesus came, there was a big change. There was a transition now from an old to a new covenant. And uh, we have to understand that that transition is not easy. It's challenging. And there was a progression a progression of changes that had to happen in the minds and hearts of the people to understand what it meant. So when we uh, first 15 chapters of Acts are all un unpacking for us the initial days of this transition, Acts 15 being the, the first church council where they wrestled with what what is the meaning that Jesus is Lord in Christ? What does that mean? What does that imply about the issue of salvation, which is the forgiveness of sin, being justified with the Father, and now being right standing with God and enjoying eternal life? You know, what is required to get to that place? And it's easy to be confused, and they were confused to some degree. There was debate among them about whether or not it was a Jewish-only opportunity. And one of the things they settled in Acts 15 was the reality that all ethnicities would be included. There was a question about whether or not, okay, if we include all ethnicities, do they still have to obey the law of Moses and be circumcised? And that was settled. No, you do not have to obey the law of Moses and be circumcised because this is a message of grace. It's a free gift. Whereas the law of Moses required obedience to receive the blessing. Here, the blessing comes as a gift, and the obedience is a response to the gift. So it's a different, a different approach. However, there's still some lingering confusion, and that confusion showed up in the stipulations that the council put on the all the ethnicities, which meant all the Gentiles, and the stipulations were Four little simple things that were very tied to the Mosaic law. They were things you were to to abstain from. And arguably they were suggestions, but but still they were these it was contingencies. There were these these this, you, it's not by obedience to the law except it's that kind of thing. And the four things were they were not allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols or or meat that had been strangled or they drink blood, or they were supposed to not participate in sexual immorality. And we have to understand sexual immorality to them was any sexual context outside the context of biblical marriage. That was forbidden. And that's still the biblical standard, by the way. Uh, so while that's not a, a, a requirement to come into right relationship with God, it is the proper response of those who have come into right relationship with God. Well, in time, the ecclesia would, would deal with these stipulations. Paul deals with them probably the best in Galatians 1 and 2, and eventually they're removed. And salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, period, it becomes a standard for what we call the message, the good news of the gospel. So this we're on a journey here with the early church as we go through Acts to really come to clarity on this point. So now we're at, uh, at Acts 16. Uh, the church council has been conducted. They've issued their unanimous verdict. They had the four stipulations. Everybody's excited because that's great progress. You know, even though it's not complete, complete where they're going to get to, it's a good step toward that. 
they delivered that news to Antioch and the people in Antioch were very encouraged. And Paul and Silas and Barnabas stayed there for a period of time teaching and, and uh, helping the body of Christ grow and mature. And then Paul got an itch. The itch was, hey, we need to go back and visit the brothers where we have we visited before. And uh, Barnabas said, hey, great idea. Let's take Mark. And Paul said, no, we don't no, want to take John Mark. John Mark deserted us on our first trip. And Barnabas and Mark were cousins. So Barnabas was insistent that they take Mark. And they had a strong disagreement. Paul and Barnabas had a strong disagreement. And so Barnabas left with Mark, went to Cyprus, which was part of where they went on their first journey. And Paul then took Silas, and they, he went up to, into uh, Syria and Cilicia, which is also part of where they went. So it's like they divided up and divided the territory that they had gone on the first journey, Barnabas taking Mark and going one place, and Paul taking Silas and going the other. So they, they get up into their visits and having a wonderful time. They run into a man named Timothy uh, in Lystra, and they discover this man's really got a heart for the Lord. We feel he's bonded to us. We need to make him part of our traveling party. So they, they brought Timothy in, uh, and then they began to go up from, from where they had gone before into new areas. But they ran into trouble. They tried to go into Phrygia, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia, and the scripture says the Holy Spirit would not allow it, or the Spirit of Christ would not allow it. It's like, wow, uh, we're not used to thinking in terms of where the Holy Spirit would stop us. We would think if we're being stopped, we're being stopped by the enemy. But no, that's not the case. They were stopped by the Holy Spirit. So they, they, they made their way to the far western city there in what's modern-day Turkey, was then Asia, the mushroom city of Troas. Now, in Troyes, after they'd gone through these places and had all these restrictions where they couldn't do what they wanted to do, they had favor in Troyes. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13 tells us that Paul had favor there in Troyes, that coastal city. Luke was there. He met Luke. Luke joined the traveling party at that point. One night, Paul has a vision, a man from Macedonia urging him to come. And so he got together with his brothers the next morning, this traveling party, and said, look, here's this vision. What do you think the Lord is saying? So they sought the Lord together and concluded that the Lord is calling them to go to Macedonia, and specifically to the leading city of Macedonia, which was Philippi. So that is the predicate now for where we're going to start. So we will start reading in Acts 16, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea. You see, now we have the we statements, which indicates that Luke is part of the traveling party. We set, we see, and sailed straight from Samothrace the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. Now, I don't know how long that took. It looks like it may have been a, about a 150-mile voyage. voyage. Um, you know, if they could make two or three knots an hour with favorable wind, you know, you're probably talking about, you know, something like uh, 50 hours, maybe. So it was a lengthy voyage. You know, today we'd probably make that voyage in something like, you know, a day. Uh, but back then they didn't have powered vessels, so they were dependent on the wind. So you get to Philippi, and the name Philippi means lover of horses. Now, this is a Roman colony, and it's the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Now, when you study the book of Philippians, his epistle to the Philippians, and look at some of the background, you find out that it was a Roman city. 
There is no synagogue there, which means there were very few Jews, not enough Jews for a synagogue. And it was largely retired Roman soldiers. It was on the Roman way. It was considered one of the outposts that would protect the Roman Empire. It would be an early warning uh, outpost. If enemies showed up um, from the from the east, they would most likely want to get on the Roman road, and they would do that somewhere around Philippi. Well, the Philippians would become aware of this, and they could begin send their runners down the Roman road to Rome to warn Rome that we got we got enemy coming. So being a, an outpost with former retired Roman soldiers was a really good thing for the Roman Empire. So Paul and Silas get to this place. They stayed in the city for several days. They're obviously looking around, trying to get the lay of the land, trying to figure out who, where's this man that I saw in the vision. And he's going to be surprised. It is so interesting how God surprises us because we get, we get pictures. You know, things happen and we get pictures in our mind. And then we go looking for those pictures to happen, and God will do things differently. He will almost always surprise us. So he surprises Paul. So on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river. There's no synagogue here. So we expected to find a place of prayer. We're looking for where might the people gather to pray on the Sabbath since there's no synagogue. And so here's a nice river, apparently a little valley. This would be a nice tranquil place, a quiet place. We can go. We may find some people there. So they do. We sat down and we spoke to the women gathered there. There were women gathered around this place. We don't know if there were any men as well, but there were women. And what he takes note of, he said, a God-fearing woman named Lydia. Now, that's very interesting. How would he know that she is God-fearing? You know, I we don't know how he knew that, but he makes note this was a God-fearing woman named Lydia. Now, she was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira is an Asian city, so she had made the same boat journey that Paul had made to get to Philippi. We don't know why she's there. We don't know that, but we know she has a house there. So she might be doing business there part-time during the year. Those things we don't have details on, but she's there a seller of purple cloth, which is considered to be royal clothing. Purple cloth was always would, would indicate royalty. Uh, she's there. And it's interesting. He says next, not only is she a God-fearing woman, she was listening. And this word for listening is a kuo. Now, it's the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense in the Greek language means past action that has not been completed. So she started listening clearly to when Paul started sharing, and she was listening. She continued to listen. She didn't get bored. She didn't daydream. She didn't drift off. She didn't get up and walk around. She's listening. In fact, it's the active voice. I means she is doing this. It's indicative mood, which means it's a fact. It's singular because it's her, specifically her listening. She's not talking about anybody else but her listening. And then it says, the Lord opened, opened her heart to respond. You say, wait a minute. If she's listening, why does she need the Lord to open the heart? So you get to begin to get a clue of the reality that you can listen intently and not really hear. You've got to have the Holy Spirit opening your heart. This is why when we're going about trying to serve the purpose of God, we're looking where the Lord is opening the hearts of people so they can respond to the message that God has put in us. And that message is first lived and then spoken. 
You have no authority to speak without living. That's called hypocrisy. You only have authority to live, and then perhaps you'll be invited to speak. So the Lord opened her heart to respond, and and that is her response here is being extremely attentive. I'm not only listening, but you can tell I'm listening. You know, I, I teach a good bit, and I can look out among my students, and I can see who's listening and who's really listening. There's another level. And that to me is indicating who the Lord is working with. Who's he, who's he opening up to really receive this to whatever it is that I'm saying. So the apostle Paul was speaking and the Lord opened her heart to respond. And afterwards she and her household were baptized. Now we don't know what the basis of that was. We don't, we, you know, today we do it based on a personal testimony back then they were not as inclined to do that. They were more looking at the life. So maybe he had testimony of other people. Maybe Paul was just persuaded in what he saw in her. This looked like a real, real legitimate person who's come to Christ. I don't know what he saw. We don't know what he saw. But she was baptized. And she urged us. That's the word uh, parakaleo. You may be, have heard that term translated encouragement. Well, this is a more uh, intense, more intense form. It's not just casually, please do this, but you must do this. You must come. Uh, and then she even says this, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, that word for consider is the word judge, crino. Crino means to make distinction. If you distinguish me as a believer in the Lord, as truly a believer, you, she's not asking him to believe my words. Am I reflecting the Lord persuasively enough that you believe that? Then come and stay at my house. And so she persuaded him, and they did. And so they apparently, wherever they were living, they apparently transitioned and lived at Lydia's house. So that was the salvation of Lydia. Lydia was a female, was not a male. So I'm sure Paul and Silas and his traveling party talked about that. Now, what has this got to do with that vision I had back um, in Troas? Moving on here, in Acts 16, verse 16, we have Paul and Silas going about their business, and they get arrested. Once we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and as she cried out, these men, she cried out, these men are who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the most high God. Now that is a statement of truth. Coming from the lips of a demonically, demonically oppressed little girl. You say, wait a minute, how could this spirit of Antichrist be speaking truth? Well, the spirit of Antichrist will use truth. He'll use it for his agenda. His agenda was to get them in trouble. He was not trying to proclaim truth, to glorify God or help in some way. He was trying to get them in trouble. And he knew the people there wouldn't understand a thing that, you know, that there, that this, that's being met, said here. I, we can speak truth. And if we know people aren't going to understand it, it's not going to mean anything. So she did this for many days. Apparently this happened many times. Finally, Paul gets annoyed. So. This may be an example of, um, you know, a sanctified uh, anger, uh, sanctified uh, frustration, perhaps annoyance. Uh, turning to the Spirit, he said, "I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her." 
And it came out right away. It had no choice. It has to obey the authority of Jesus. And what her owners, now these are owners, uh, were called curios. Now that's the word for Lord. And of course they would use that not only for human Lords, but also for the Lord. Jesus was the ultimate curios. He was the curios, but there were human Lords as well. So they had authority. They were businessmen and they realized they saw, I don't know how they saw, but they realized they had hope. The hope of profit was gone because this little the slave girl lost her ability to entertain. Her ability to fortune tell was no longer there. So they, saw, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. This is the Agora. The Agora is the place of assembly. Um, it's not necessarily the marketplace. It could be around the marketplace. The marketplace may be on the edge of it or something, but it's a place where they gathered. And in Roman cities, because the Roman citizens didn't work, they spent a lot of time together talking about life, you know, sipping coffee at the local Starbucks and talking about philosophy and things of that nature. So this was common. This is what they did. And so they, they drag him in there specifically to the authorities. The archon, you may hear the word RK, which means first, the authorities are the ones that have the ultimate authority about what to do here. And they brought them for the chief of these people. And they said, these men are seriously disturbing. See, the charge is disturbing the peace. They're disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt or practice. Now, wait a minute. What they've really done is cast out a demon that meant these businessmen had lost revenue because this demon-possessed girl couldn't do any fortune-telling anymore. That's what really done, but they don't charge him for that. They charge him for promoting customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt. The crowd joined in. They attacked against them. In other words, it's instant. There's no trial. There's no hearing. There's no asking, you know, why do you respond to these charges? The crowd just joins in. They attack against them. They beat them. The chief magistrates strip off their clothes. They ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail and ordered the jailer to guard them carefully. Don't just be casual about this. So receiving such an order, you know, he put them in the inner prison where there were probably multiple doors to get to this. And then they put their feet in the stocks. So this is where you get sometimes when you're trying to obey the will of God, you get wind up in jail, you get in the stocks. You wind up being un, unrighteously, unjustly accused and abused. So let's see what happened in prison now. Paul and Silas are in prison. Now, if you're Paul and Silas, think about how you respond here. Uh, you think you have been sent by God to this place to do his work, and you've been working hard to meet people and share the message, the word of the Lord that you believe is transforming, will answer the questions of life and enable them to live the lives God's called them to live. We're here with the answers to life right here. We're God's people. And how, why are we here? We have a sovereign, holy God. He could keep us from being here, but we're in jail. And furthermore, we're hurting. We've been stripped. We probably, probably been starved. We have been beaten. We've been abused. We have been wrongly thrown here in jail. There's been no trial. This is all so out of order, both in terms of human authority, and it looks like out of order with divine authority, but looks can be deceiving. 
So Paul and Silas are down, the, not down there moaning and growing, woe is me. God, have you forgotten me? Do you realize, what, you know, I'm your servant here, and look what you've done. You got me locked up. How can I serve you here? What they're doing down there is praying and singing hymns. This word, humnoo, humnuo, which is translated, you see here, the English word hymn in it, uh, it's a Pascal song. Uh, Pascal Psalms were Psalms of suffering. And these Psalms, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118 and Psalm 136, these are Psalms that were sung at the major events, the major Jewish festivals. There are three festivals, you know, the Passover, the uh, day of Pentecost, and the day of atonement. So they're roughly three months apart, uh, starting in the spring, summer, and the fall. So, and they would gather for these these celebrations. The Jews would travel from all over, wherever they were, to Jerusalem, to these festivals. And these are the songs they would sing. They sang sang right out of the out of the, of the Psalms. So they had these memorized. Now I didn't count all the verses, but these are some of these Psalms are short. Some of them are pretty lengthy, but they had them memorized and they were singing. They had put them all to music. This is the great Hallel. Hallel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that well. It's H-A-L-L-E-L, hello. Uh, so it's a great praise. Hello means praise. They're praising God. And the prisoners were listening. And this is a, a verb. Uh, it's an imperfect tense, which means they started listening and kept listening. And, it, and it's an intensified for, uh, verb, which means it's intense listening. They were really listening. Now, it's midnight. Why are they listening to other prisoners sing praises to God? They, they, they's got to be thinking in their minds. Well, if he were really God, they wouldn't be in here. And what kind of God would allow your servants to be put in here? Not much of a God. That's kind of what we would think, but they're not thinking that. There's something about what's going on where they can't help but listen. Now we don't know this, but it looks like the Spirit of God's at work here in these prisoners. All right, going on. Suddenly. There was a violent earthquake, that the, so violent that the foundations of the jails were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul, now keep in mind, there are no lights. Paul can't see anything. Paul just calls out in a loud voice. He so he viscerally knows, some way he knows what this jailer is getting ready to do. Because in the Roman customs, which we saw in Acts chapter uh, 11 or 12, we saw where a jailer was killed because he let Peter get away. Even though Peter was supernaturally delivered from the jail, he, the, the jailer got killed. That's what happens. There was no, no mercy. So Paul knew that that was a Roman custom. And he yelled to the jailer, don't harm yourself because we're all here. Perhaps because the earthquake just happened, the door just came open, the stocks just came off. We haven't had time to escape. We're still here. So the jailer calls for lights. So there are other people there with him. We don't know how many. They rush in and he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. Now he's a Roman. So his, his worldview is informed by the polytheistic Roman gods. So it, it's, he's probably responding somewhat like the people in Lystra did in Acts 14 
when Paul did a miracle there, and the people immediately called Paul and Barnabas, you know, Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas went to great efforts to try to correct that. Well, that may be what was going on in the mind of the jailer. He was thinking the same kind of thing. But Paul and Silas, you know, are you know, are able to obviously manage him. He escorts them out and he said, asked them a question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The slave girl had answered the question. These are the representatives of the most high God. They're going to tell you how to be saved. And so maybe, maybe he heard that. Maybe he knew that. And so now he's saying, what's the answer? What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The believe is the aorist tense, which means it's not time-specific. It is an imperative, meaning that faith is a trait of one who knows Christ. It's an active voice. It's something that you will do. Now, it doesn't say that you have the power to do it. That's generally assumed when people read this, that if God tells you, commands you to believe, that you have the power to believe. Other scripture informs us we don't have the power to believe. And that, therefore, the only way we can believe is we have to be born again by the Spirit first. So regeneration precedes faith. And Acts 2, or Ephesians 2, rather, verses 8 and 9, Paul makes it very clear that faith is not a work. So this, when the, this active voice that we believe, it's our responsibility, it isn't a work that comes from us. It's something we do in response to the work of God. So you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and that's a future tense, and you and your household. In other words, he focuses not just on right now. He's focusing on the future. You'll be saved from future judgment because clearly someone who is very clear about the questions of life knows that the ultimate judgment is yet to come. And they spoke the word of the Lord. They spoke the word of the Lord. That is, Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord. Okay, he didn't say they, you know, we use the word gospel kind of carelessly. Uh, it's the word of the Lord. That's another way to say gospel. To him along with everyone in his oikos. This is an household, presumably his family, his slaves, everyone. Because everyone, you know, all Roman citizens had slaves. So it was everyone. At same hour, uh, the, the, the jailer takes the Paul and Barnabas and he brings them to his house. They wash their wounds and they were baptized. So here, verse 33, you have both Paul and Barnabas enjoying water and the jailer in his home are enjoying water too. Different though, one is getting their wounds cleansed. The other one is being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism happens. They're clearly, again, like in the case of Lydia, uh, Paul must have been persuaded that this was genuine that what he was seeing was real, and he was he was persuaded they had been born again, and so he baptized them. Now, we don't know if they he sprinkled them, they went in down into a river, or there was a pond in the backyard. We don't know how those things happened, but they, he baptized them. After all this, um, he fed them, and they had great joy because they had come to believe in God and it, with his entire household. They had come to believe in the true God, not the false Roman gods, which were pseudo-gods. They were more like God-men. All right, so now let's go on to the conclusion here, Acts 16, 35 through 40. When daylight come, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release these men. 
So sometime before daylight, the jailer takes Paul and Silas back, puts them in prison, presumably back in the stocks. Everything's restored. Uh, and the jailer reported the words that the magistrates have sent you to be released so you can go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us out in, in, uh, threw us in jail. And now they're going to take us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let us come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. So Paul's, Paul really has a set in. When he finds out he's been released, he says, I refuse to go. You know, I've been wrongly imprisoned. I am a Roman citizen. When they heard he was a Roman citizen, they realized they were in trouble. And so they came, and this is why the, the magistrates, the chief leaders of town, come and apologize for their error and hope, hoping that, that Paul and Silas won't turn them in because that could really get them in trouble. That also tells you that at any point in this particular story, Paul and Silas could have pulled out the trump card and said, we're Roman citizens, stop. He could have done that, but they didn't. That's very interesting because we today are all about stopping suffering and pain. Paul and Silas, for whatever reason, were willing to endure it and saw the purpose of God in it. So they didn't try to escape it. They knew God was doing something and they were going to stay in it until everything that God wanted to do through it got done. That is very foreign to how we think today. So let me just give you a, a little a few comments on the theology of suffering. Paul and Silas experienced the reality of the call of every Christian, that is to suffer for Jesus. Peter explained the call to suffer for doing right in these words, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you, that is you Christians, were called to this, that is to suffer for Jesus because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When the Lord sent Ananias to pray for Paul, the Lord told Ananias that he would show Paul how much he must suffer for him. So, wow, that would be an exciting moment. Paul, I've just redeemed you from sin and death, and now you're going to suffer for me. But the Lord said to him, go for this man, that is Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Have we thought about how much we must suffer for his name? We don't generally talk too much about that. That's not pleasant. That is sometimes viewed as being not Christian. You know, Christians think that life should be a painless existence, but that's not what we see here. It is easy to, easy to wonder if Paul's call to suffer for Christ was it limited to him, or was it, or and is it prescriptive for all Christians? Peter answers the question. It is prescriptive for all. If you know Christ, it is part of what you're called to do. In fact, Paul says it's a privilege. He says this in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, 
but also to suffer for him. You see, faith is granted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. What a gift that is. What a precious gift. So this text, Paul, in this text, Paul elevates suffering. Suffering for Christ is to be viewed as a privilege. But prior to Paul's conversion, the apostles were flogged for speaking in the name of Jesus. They, they counted it, this as a privilege. Luke recorded this in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. He said, after the Sanhedrin uh, called, to, uh, the apostles, called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin. This is the apostles, and they, the apostles were, were basically rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to be treated shamefully in the name of Jesus. It was a privilege. Suffering for righteousness is normative for Christians. It is a privilege. It should be done as modeled by the early apostles, and it should be done as modeled here by Paul and Silas in, in Philippi. So let me give you a word of application. This is suffering for righteousness. During lunch with a local uh, leader, local church leader several years ago, I asked him to share his theology of suffering. He stared at me for a moment, and then he said, I don't have one. This thinking, uh, sadly, is all too common among those who believe God is the great problem solver in the sky. These people, generally, what they're looking for is a comfortable, pleasant life, and they're not looking to suffer pain, discomfort, or anything. If suffering happens, it's out of order. It's not congruent with the teaching of Scripture. They believe that the idea of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven means that if there's no suffering in heaven, there's no suffering on earth. And so we claim texts like Isaiah 53, that Jesus is our healer, and by his stripes we're healed. And we claim that and, and lean on that to say we should not suffer ever. And that's that's a common view today. However, that is not a view consistent with the rest of Scripture. We see that. This is the text that I've just read to you above. Paul and his traveling companions spent some time in Philippi sharing the word of the Lord, the good news that Jesus was and is both Lord and Christ. However, apparently few understood this, and few still do, as Jesus, who had the answers to the seminal questions of life, was unrecognized and unheard during his day, so also was the experience of Paul and Philippi. During that time, Paul and Silas encountered the demonically possessed slave girl. She spoke truly when she declared, these men, that is Paul and Silas, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, are the servants of the Most High God. That truth was spoken here. Salvation is a way. It's not an event. It, salvation is a lifestyle that you enter in which Jesus is Lord of all. And it is regulated by God most high and his revealed word, largely the scripture. It was strange to hear truth from the mouth of a demonically possessed person. However, as a pawn of the spirit of Antichrist, her purpose was to discredit, discredit Paul and, and Silas and in the Roman culture, a slave girl was not credible. Her only purpose was to entertain. So on this one occasion when she annoyed Paul, and Paul responded by casting out the demon, then the owners of the slave girl realized that she was no longer able to entertain. They responded angrily because they lost their ability to make a profit from her antics. Paul and Silas were arrested, 
and declared guilty of disrupting the culture without a trial. Consequently, they were attacked, stripped, beaten, and incarcerated. Life became very uncomfortable and unpleasant for them, though the gospel message attracted little interest or attention from the Philippians when their economics were impacted, there was reaction. That seems to be the hot thing. You want to touch somebody, touch their money, and you'll get their attention. Though they could, uh, they could perceive the economic impact of exorcism of the slave girl, they could not perceive the truth of the word of the Lord. They lacked metaphysical awareness, which means the Holy Spirit had not opened their hearts to receive it, like, they, like he had done with Lydia. He opened Lydia's heart to receive the truth. He had not opened these businessmen's hearts. They lacked this metaphysical awareness. They lacked the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to respond properly. Consequently, instead of conviction and repentance because of the word of the Lord from Paul, the businessmen sought illicit revenge. But God used the unjust situation redemptively because what man means for evil, God means for good. Paul and Silas were sent by God to Philippi to proclaim the word of the Lord to the Gentiles and to suffer as prophetically explained by the Lord to Ananias. And this is the Acts 9, 15 through 16 text again, where, where the Lord, Lord Jesus tells Ananias, you need to go to this man because Ananias is resisting God's call to go go talk to Paul because Ananias had heard Paul was a toxic guy. He's a persecutor of the body of Christ. Ananias is not sure the Lord really understands that. And the, hopefully you see the humor in that. So the Lord's reassuring him, no, you need to go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. Uh, wow. If we got a telegraph or an email from the Lord with something like that, uh, you're my instrument to go this, this, and this, and do this, this, and this, and I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. I'm not sure most of us would want to read that email. We'd want to put that in the spam folder pretty quickly. But Paul clearly didn't have a problem. Paul and Silas were aware of the risk of unjust suffering. This didn't dissuade them. At any point, he could have revealed his Roman citizenship and probably escaped some, if not all, the pain and suffering. Instead, in, basically, he patiently endured and maintained a joyful, thankful attitude. Some way, he knew that it was God's will that they endure this. And they were thankful and grateful. The attitude was, it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. Now, they were not bringing this on themselves. They were not masochists. They were just living life as they knew it. And they got wrongly mistreated, wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, wrongly beaten, wrongly incarcerated. You know, it was all totally illicit. And the apostle Peter explained that these are the kinds of things that we will suffer. We will suffer for doing righteousness. And we have to be willing to do it because Christ gave us the pattern. He did that for us. So in Acts, the original apostles considered it a, a privilege to suffer for Christ. So did Paul. However, we don't think that way. We don't think it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. We think Christ is here just to serve us, our whims, our will, our ways, our glory, our agenda. Are we really Christians? Really? Is this anything close to what we see in Scripture, the way we're living today? It's pretty convicting. 
In today's world, following the Pauline example and suffering for righteousness means denying the worship of money manifested in illicit value propositions such as hedonism. You want to know what we value today? Look at where the money is. The money's in our entertainment. These athletes, professional athletes, making millions and millions and millions of dollars to play a game, simply to entertain. That's it. That's all it is. People make movies, you know, make, make music, uh, concerts, entertainment. That's it. In fact, it's so infected the Christian world that largely the Christian world's adopted entertainment as the standard by which to gather. And how we, we attract people is through entertainment. This is called hedonism. We are hedonistic people, fundamentally. We call ourselves Christians, but we are largely hedonist. And we are denying uh, the humanistic expression. You know, we basically, what we do is we, excuse me, let me rephrase this. We, in addition to illicit value propositions, we function as humanists by embracing illicit practices, such as supporting LGBTQ agendas like gender dysphoria, homosexual marriage, abortion, and the separation of the Bible from everything. We, we have embraced these practices largely in most organizations today because they are culturally popular and organizations are pragmatic. They want to make money. So you make money by doing things that are popular. So this is the way of the world. And this has moved into how Christian communities gather. Christians should expect that standing on the veracity of Scripture will attract persecution by the spirit of Antichrist through, through human agents. The proper response was modeled by Paul and Silas, namely peace, joy, and thanksgiving in the midst of suffering. So responding to unjust suffering correctly is challenging, but it can also be done redemptively. And in this case, the apostle Paul gives us guidance in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. This is how he suggests we handle trials and tribulations of life. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God will surpass all understanding. We'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me, and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Unbeknownst to my pastor friend at the beginning of this application, there is a theology of suffering that is redemptive. Paul and Silas modeled it. Peter explained it. Jesus modeled it. Should we not do the same? That's what Christianity is. It's following Jesus, doing what he did, thinking as he thought, living as he lived. But we have the grace to follow his example and that of his followers, Paul and Peter and Silas and Barnabas and of the other apostles who all were willing to suffer and die for the name of Jesus. May that be our strength and our portion in Jesus' name. Amen.